Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Acts chapter 22, verses 22 through verse 30, and we'll finish up the chapter. Our context is this. Paul was in the middle of addressing the Jerusalem mob, having been arrested for his own safety by the Roman tribune, the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. Paul is standing at the top of the steps there at the Antonia Fortress, and he's trying to convince the Jews that he's not anti-Jew, he's not anti-Temple, he's not uh, against Israel. And he's speaking to him in Aramaic, and they're listening. And then he gets to the very bottom. He gives his testimony, basically, of how he got converted. And then he says that when he was earlier in Jerusalem and in a trance from Jesus, Jesus told him, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then we start picking up in verse 22. They listened to him, the Jerusalem mob, listened to him up to this word. What word? The word Gentiles. Then they raised their voices, shouting, Wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to live. So the word Gentile set them off. These were one hugely bigoted group of people. Now, why did the Jews object to Paul going to the Gentiles? I mean, even the Jews themselves went to the Gentiles making proselytes, which proves that they were hypocrites. Matthew twenty-three fifteen. this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the Jews were out making proselytes. And so now Paul can't make proselytes? Well, it was more than this, the fact that Paul was making proselytes. What they heard and understood about Paul was actually a misconception. They thought that Paul meant that Gentiles were replacing the Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. Oh, you mean you're going to replace us Jews from our privileged position in the economy of God? So the misconceptions about Paul's anti-law attitude must have been very, very deep. Of course, Paul was anti-law in the sense of anti-Jewish tradition, which, of course, is going to be animosity because of that. He was also anti-law, not because the law was not good. He said the law was good and holy, but the purpose of the law was to convict people of sin and to inform people of sin, but it was not to get them saved. Well, you know, that misconception carries forward in the modern-day church. How many times have you heard people being confused about how the law applies to the Christian today? It doesn't apply to the Christian today. It applies to people, well, it, before eighty seventy, it applied to Jews, and today it's great for history, but it doesn't apply to the Christian today. We're under the New Testament law of Christ, and the, and the Gentile non-believers under the natural law, that when even his conscience condemns him of what's right and wrong. But just because you say that you're under the law of Christ, is what, basically what Paul is getting ready to say, well then... Does that mean he's against law at all? Law of Christ? No, he's under the the moral commands of Jesus, but the Jews didn't like that. They thought that you needed to be under the moral commands of Moses. In addition to all the the moral commands of the Pharisees, which said things like that, you can't spit on the Sabbath because you make a furrow in the ground with your saliva, and that's working, and therefore you violated the Sabbath and all these other ridiculous laws. But Paul was not against he was not even against the the Mosaic law. People wanted to keep it for, for non-salvific reasons. If they wanted to not eat shrimp, that's fine with him. He didn't care. So uh, if he wanted to get circumcised to keep the Jews from getting upset, he didn't mind about that either. He'd circumcised Timothy. But he did not want to say that you're saved by keeping the law. And this, is, of course, was already decided some 15 years earlier or so at the Jerusalem Council. Now, there's a modern analogy to this attitude. 
How about modern Christians who start screaming, replacement theology, oh, you believe that the New Testament church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament church, and therefore that which is fulfilled has been done away with, just like a, a fulfilled contract is done away with, and therefore you want to replace the Jews with Gentiles. Oh, you're anti-Semitic. Now, this, I'm not exaggerating. I remember going to one of these Jewish wannabe sessions, Messianic Jewish weekend seminars, and I sat for a solid weekend listening to hours and hours and hours of Messianic Judaism, and I heard the term replacement theology thrown around all the time. And then I finally got mad when I heard the term anti-Semitism floating around because I believe that the New Testament church is the new Israel, and it fulfills the Old Testament church. That does not make me anti-Semitic. Well, Paul was basically accused of being anti-Semitic here, <laughs> and then there's a riot. Well, there's a lot of riots among Christians, too, unfortunately. Whenever somebody talks to me about, oh, you you believe in replacement theology, you're anti-Semitic, or if they get close to that, I just say, well, I'm a, who's more anti-Semitic, me or you that believes that the future of the Jews is nuclear bombs, blowing up Israel, polluting a third of the rivers and destroying a fourth of the crops and destroying the land and filling the land with blood? To me, that's more anti-Semitic than me, which says that in the New Testament church, Jews can come in individually and be grafted back into the into the olive tree with no trouble. So Paul was not saying that Gentiles replace Jews. He was saying that, no, Gentiles can come in with Jews with the wall of partition broken down into one new body, the church. A lot of stuff going on here. We go to verse 23 and 24 in Acts 22. As they, this is the Jerusalem mob, as they were yelling and flinging aside their robes and throwing dust into the air, the commander, that's Claudius Lysias, ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks. Remember, the barracks were right there in the fortress there, which is on the northwest corner of the temple complex, the Antonia Fortress. Lysias directing that he, Paul, be examined with the, with the scourge so he could discover the reason why they were shouting against him like this. Now remember, Lysias is listening to a mob. He's watching them throw dust in the air and people shaking, uh, throwing off their robes. And they're angry as they can be. They're hysterical. They're about to create mob violence. What's a Roman commander to think? He couldn't understand the Aramaic that Paul was speaking. He didn't know what was going on, but he knew it must be something terrible to, to, to incite such a riot like this, such a, such a hostile reaction. So he wants to find out. Now, what was this mob doing? Well, they were flinging aside their robes. Why were they flinging aside their robes? Well, perhaps they were just acting like madmen, just gone crazy. I think a better explanation is this is, as Gill and Clark suggest, they were taking off their robes so they could butter stone Paul. They could pick up some stones and start heaving. Adam Clark says it was customary for Jews to shake upper garments when they were angry, but the word there is flinging aside, not shaking. I came up with a possible scenario of what happened. Maybe they took off their cloaks, then they shook them, and then they flung them aside to throw butter, kind of combine all the above options. So we're not exactly sure why they were throwing off their flinging aside their robes. I believe it's because they were pick, getting ready to pick up rocks and kill Paul. They were also throwing dust into the air. Why were they doing that? As John Gill says, to show indignation and, and wrath, like persons possessed or mad. You know, King David had the same problem when during Absalom's rebellion, 2 Samuel 16, 13. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei, Shimei was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shimei went, he cursed David and threw stones and dirt in him. Well, that's not really throwing dust up in the air, but it's, it shows distaste when you throw dirt at somebody. We go now to verse 25 in Acts 22. As they, that's the Roman soldiers, stretched him, stretched Paul out for the lash, 
That means they're tying him up to a post. The Greek word is used for tying a person to a post for whipping, as the NIV Study Bible says. So they're tying him up to a post, ready to whip him, ready to scourge him. And Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? In other words, who, in other words, who has not gone through a judicial trial? And the facts have not been gathered yet, and nobody's ever condemned, proven that I've done anything wrong. Is that legal for you to be whipping me, scourging me? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question. It's obviously illegal, and it had its intended effect. It scared the soldiers to death. Now, notice that what Paul was about to experience was not a mere flogging. Paul had been caught by Roman magistrates before in Philippi. You recall when he had cast a demon out of a slave girl who was doing fortune-telling for profit, slave girl owners took Paul before the Philippian magistrates, and the Philippian magistrates ordered them to be flogged. Now, flogged is not the same thing as scourged. Flogged just means they're whipped. Scourging, they use whips with little tiny pieces of bone or metal at the end and just rip your skins off, skin apart. It was a terrible, degrading form of punishment, which, of course, was illegal for you to, for Romans courts to use on Roman citizens. They could use it on aliens, they could use it on slaves, but they couldn't use it on Roman citizens. Now, in Philippi, Paul used his Roman citizenship to good effect. Let me read that, Acts 16.37. This is on the second journey. Now, remember, our context here, we're much later than this, several years later at the end of the third journey in Jerusalem. But going back to the second journey in Acts 16.37, Paul said to them, they, that's the Philippian magistrates, beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens, and threw us in jail. Now, those Philippian guys did worse than Claudius Lysias. They actually carried out the beating. It wasn't a scourging, it was a flogging, but they still beat him. And then they threw him in jail. And now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. In other words, Paul wanted to show he was totally innocent to protect the church he was leaving behind at Philippi, so nobody would think that the church had done anything illegal. All right, so here Paul again appeals to his Roman citizenship. We go to verse 26 and 27. When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander. The centurion is a local Roman, uh, not local, a subordinate Roman military official, control of 100. Lysias, the commander of the Roman Tribune, as the ESV translates it, the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as commander. I think he had about 1,000 under him, if I remember correctly. So he's the big dog there. So the centurion reports to the commander saying, what are you going to do for this man is a Roman citizen? In other words, I don't think we ought to be whipping this guy. Verse 27, the commander, that's Claudius Lysias, came and said to him, said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he, Paul, said. So Claudius Lysias was careful here. He did not want to beat a Roman citizen. The, I'm sure the punishment for doing that would have been extremely severe. Now, Paul had earlier told Claudius Lysias that Paul, that he, Paul, was from Tarsus. This is at the end of the last chapter, Acts 21, verse 39. Paul said, Paul said to Claudius Lysias, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now, I ask you, let me speak to the people. Paul didn't mention anything about citizenship then, but now he mentions citizenship, verse 28. Acts 22, the commander, that's Claudius Lysias, replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. Now, that's a little bit unclear or obscure to me here. Why would Claudius Lysias at this juncture bring out that he had bought his citizenship for a large amount of money? Was it just a passing thought that Claudius Lysias had when he heard Paul mention citizenship? I don't think so. He was probably wondering how Paul could possibly be a citizen. 
he was th looking at Paul and thinking, man, you are so poor. It cost a lot of money to buy citizenship like I did. Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out that in Claudius' time, citizenship was sold for a high price. It was expensive. Later on, it went for next to nothing. But at this time when, at, that we're talking about here, it was expensive. And Claudius Lysias couldn't figure out how a poor apostle traveling around the world could be a Roman citizen. Not to mention the fact he's Jewish, and Jews tended to not be Roman citizens. So that was a shock to him. So he's going to ask him. And Paul is trying to say, hey, I might, I might be poor, and I might not have been able to buy my citizenship, but hey, I was born a citizen. Now, the next question is, and by the way, how did Paul, how was Paul born a citizen? Now, the NIV study Bible says it is not known how Paul's father or Paul's earlier ancestor had gained citizenship. Adam Clark says the history of Tarsus shows that this is easily possible, and I think somewhere previously in my notes under Tarsus, I discovered that Octavian had given the whole city of Tarsus citizenship for some reason. It was an important city. Adam Clark says the details and speculations are complicated on exactly how Paul got his citizenship, so we don't really care, but we know that he was a citizen. Paul was telling Lysias the truth. Now, the next question is, is why did Lysias believe it? Let's go to verse 29 of Acts 22. Therefore, those who were about to examine him, that's the soldiers, Roman soldiers, withdrew from him at once because they knew you don't mess with a Roman citizen. They didn't want to get in trouble. The commander, too, was alarmed. That's Claudius Lysias, the commander, the Roman commander, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. Again, I ask, how does, why does Lysias just assume Paul is telling the truth? Well, I think John Gill has the answer. It was an extremely, it was capital crime to lie about being a Roman citizen. They could kill you if you falsely claimed to be a Roman citizen. Some people didn't make that kind of claim flippantly. One commentator I read said that Paul may have produced a paper. I don't know if they had citizenship papers back then or not, like passports. I don't know. I think it was probably because people just didn't routinely ask, claim that they were Roman citizens. And so now Paul uh, Lydius, uh, Claudius Lysias had bound a Roman citizen, which, according to John Gill, was a quote-unquote heinous crime. Heinous crime to bind a Roman citizen. Oh, we go to verse 30 at the end of Acts 22. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he, Claudius Lysias, the commander, the Roman commander, he released him, released Paul, and instructed the chief priest and all the Sanhedrin to convene. This is the next day. Then he brought Paul down and placed him before them. Now, Paul was released. That doesn't mean he was released from the stocks, from the pole, where he was going to be scourged. That had already happened very quickly when they when. They realized Paul might be a Roman citizen. It means he released him from the, two, the chains that were binding Paul, one chain on his left arm attached to a Roman soldier on his left, and another chain on his right arm attached to a Roman soldier on his right. List, Claudius Lysus released Paul so Paul could be just like an ordinary witness in a, in a hearing. He's, and he told the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, to come down. The chief priest, of course, were the big shots in the Sanhedrin. That could be the high priest, both current and previous, it also could be, depends on how you read it, it could be the leading priest at the time, not necessarily the high priest, but at any rate, the big shots and all the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling, ruling council there in Jerusalem, they came together, and Lysias was going to try to figure out what happened. Remember, he can't understand what the mob was upset about. He couldn't understand Aramaic. He couldn't understand Paul's defense before the Jews, and he saw, saw, and he saw such an incredibly hostile reaction, he had to find out what was going on. He was responsible for order there. So we placed Paul dad and placed him before them, and we will discuss the hearing before Claudius Lysias in our next chapter, starting in Acts chapter 23. 
We're finished with Acts chapter 22. I hope you stay tuned for the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.